Come on, somebody. We are better together. Amen. Say that with me. We are better together. Beautiful picture of what life looks like uh, when we live in isolation versus what is possible when we live in community. Uh, We all have moments uh, of isolation when it seems like uh, the enemy and life has the upper hand against us. But when we have a community of people that can surround us in our times of our greatest vulnerability, we can survive any attack no matter what. Because the truth is, the truth is, we are better together. We started a couple of weeks ago, and we declared that God's intention, his original plan for man is his eternal plan for man. And God's original plan for man is that we would be dependent on him, independent from sin, but interdependent on each other. And we're going to dive into the word of God because this principle of unity is found throughout God's word from Genesis to Revelation. I'm going to share a, uh, uh, as my anchor text, a familiar uh, uh, passage of scripture from Psalm 133, and, uh, and uh, we'll dive into the word together because I believe that the Lord wants to speak to us in a very specific way. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now in Jesus' name, and Lord, we approach your word with reverence and great humility. Lord, we thank you that in your word we find everything that pertains to life and godliness. This is our answer. This is your answer to us for all of life's challenges, all of life's successes, all of life's struggles. Not just the good, but Father, even in our times of adversity, your word is true. So speak to us now, Father, concerning uh, the power of unity and how you desire that we walk continually in unity together. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen and amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 133. Familiar passage of scripture for most, and it speaks to this idea, this overarching idea of unity, which God has called each of us to. He has invited us, each of us, into uh, unity. And we are declaring here at City Church that we are, in fact, better together. If you're there, say amen. Amen. If you're not there yet, say oh me. All right, a couple people. If you're not there yet, you don't have a Bible, you don't have your mobile device, the the, uh, uh, scriptures will be on the screens as well as the notes. And then for those of you who are tech savvy, uh, you you might want to follow along on version. Our notes are available on version as well. Psalm 133. This is a Psalm of David. It says, behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Notice that the psalmist opens that psalm, which, by the way, is a song of worship. It was a song of ascent. It was a song that the, the, the Israelites sang as they ascended Mount Zion to the place of worship. David pens this psalm, many commentators believe, when the tribes united around him just before he's anointed king. David is is observing what's happening in the nation of Israel, that the tribes are all united. And he says, wow, this is something beautiful and pleasant to behold. Have you ever been in a place in your life when you just saw something that just caught your attention and said, wow, that's a beautiful sight to behold. 
David, as king, had seen many things. But in this moment of clarity, he stopped long enough to write a song of worship about this beautiful picture that he saw of all 12 tribes of Israel united around a common vision, around a common purpose. And he says, how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together. But he doesn't just stop there because he says it's a beautiful thing when brethren dwell together, but when they dwell together in unity. How many of you realize that you can be in close proximity to a whole bunch of people and have nothing in common with them? That just because somebody might be in your circle, it doesn't necessarily mean they're in your corner. And most of us have confused having a crowd for unity. And the truth is, it is possible to experience tremendous disunity in the midst of a crowd, in the midst of an assembly. David is observing for the first time what's happening in Israel, and he says this thing is marvelous to behold because the people have one voice, they have one vision, and they have a common purpose. Are y'all with me? Uh, and he continues, and he says, man, it's like the precious oil upon the, uh, upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron. And he's talking about the anointing oil, which was a very precious oil that was made from very rare ingredients, and it was fragrant. And what he's doing with this word picture is saying, man, it's not only beautiful to be, it's not just beautiful to behold, man, but there's a fragrance of unity. When people get together and they're all in one accord, It just smells good. Are y'all with me? Uh, uh, (laughs) Amen. Thank you for confirming that, girl. It just smells good. It just smells good. And and then he continues. He said, it is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. Notice what it says in verse 3 as he closes out this verse. He says, for there the Lord commands the blessing, even life forevermore. Notice where God commands his blessing. God commands his blessing in the place where there is unity. How many of you could use a commanded blessing upon your life? The other word that's translated commanded is ordained. Where God pronounces, he ordains, he schedules a blessing upon your life. I don't know about you, man, but I got both hands raised. And the scripture says, God commands, God appoints, God declares a blessing in the place where there is unity. Remember, this is not just uh, limited to the local church, but it's also true of your house. That God will command a blessing in the house that is unified, that is united because in Mark chapter 3, I believe it's verse 25, Jesus himself, these are the words of Jesus, the words in red, he said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. I wonder if maybe this morning the Lord is inviting us to consider the things that often divide us and what we forfeit in the process. His commanded blessing upon our lives. 
Is this one of the things that, that, that my wife and I always say? We talk about it in premarital counseling, but we talk about it in life. You can't have a tug of war if one person lets go of the rope. And most times in life we're struggling and one person's pulling and the other person's pulling and there's no peace and there's no unity and people are fighting for their right to be right. To borrow from my wife once again, sometimes the greatest right that you have is your right not to be right all the time. And so Paul, I mean, David is, is, is speaking here. He's writing here and he is highlighting the necessity the necessity of unity, and he is reminding us from the ancient text that we are, in fact, better together. Why is that important? Psalm 105 and verse 19 says it this way, and and, uh, for our guests this morning, uh, the tone and the tenor of this message is going to be more like a family reunion. Oh, no, 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 I, I take that back. It's going to be more like a family, family meeting. Have you ever been invited to a family meeting? When, 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 when daddy calls time out and everybody goes into the living room and you'll have some real talk. Uh, for all of our guests, I just want to say today's one of those days where we're just going to gather in the family room and have a little family talk. Here's the good news, though. Here's the good news. If you're a guest with us for the first time, uh, 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 we borrowed this from Olive Garden. When you hear, you're family. Uh, so, so, so you're a part of the meeting this morning. Amen? And that's all right. You don't have to, you don't have to say nothing. You can just listen. And you can say, these people crazy. Because every family has a little bit of dysfunction. Come on, somebody. Come on. All right. So, so, so I just wanted to set that up and let you know that is the tone and the tenor of our conversation this morning. I think you've heard me say this before. That one of the toughest places to navigate in life is the middle. Halfway between where you used to be and where you ought to be. It can be a scary place because there is tremendous uncertainty in the middle. Now, you have an option. You have a choice. When you find yourself in the middle, you can either turn and return to everything that's comfortable, familiar, and convenient, or you can forge ahead into uncertainty with a promise from God that when you get there, I got you, baby. And that's what the life of faith looks like. But what do you do when you find yourself in the middle? What are the things that you must resolve in the middle? That halfway point where most of us settle, where most of us give up, where most of us throw in the towel. I think we can find some encouragement this morning from Psalm 105 and verse 19. Notice what it says concerning Joseph. And I'm going somewhere with this, but I got to set it up. Got to take a few minutes to set it up. Psalm 105 and verse 19 says it this way. Until the time that his word came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. Come on, this is speaking of Joseph now. 
And the psalmist writes, until the time of his word came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. Somebody say this, it's only a test. Yeah. In the middle, when you're somewhere between where you were and what God promised, in fact, I preached a message that the title was, what to do between amen and oop, there it is. Come on, somebody. Sometimes there is a gap. Between the time you ended the prayer and called out to God and when the answer to the prayer actually manifests. What do you do in between? This is what, I, this is what happens. It says the word is going to test you. When you find yourself in the middle and it seems like your life is falling apart and everywhere you turn there is uncertainty. You might even grapple with some disappointment. The scripture says it is only a test. It is there to test your character. It is there to test your faith. And you've heard me say it before that a faith that hasn't been tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. Yeah. I'm going somewhere with this. So we, we, we just finished nine days of fasting and prayer. Come on, somebody. And one of the prayers we prayed, we asked our church to pray together for was for clarity. God, help me see what I need to see. Open my eyes to behold what you're doing now. And we came to the end of those nine days of prayer and fasting. And I felt like the Lord set me down. And he said, son, we got a couple of things to talk about. And he said, Ray, in this season where you find yourself in the middle. The greatest test you will face is a test of faithfulness. He says, Ray, your frustration is this. You are fixated on where you think you should have been by now. And because of your fixation on where you think you should be and what you should have accomplished, you are frustrated with what I've put in your hand now. I'm talking to somebody. I'm talking to me. And Lord set me down. He said, that's your problem. In your mind, when you started City Church, you said, oh, man, we're going to do this thing, man. It's going to be hundreds, thousands. They're going to be everywhere. Every church planter has that dream. And when it doesn't happen according to your timeline, according to your timetable, when life doesn't happen the way you scripted it, what begins to set in is a frustration that by now I should be much farther than where I am. And what we end up doing is stop being faithful with what is in our hands now. And until the word of the Lord came to pass, the scripture says the word of the Lord tested him. And it's not just true for Ray Harmon. It's not just true for City Church. It's also true for you that the test all of us must face is a test of faithfulness. Will you be faithful with the little? Because I know your fixation, Ray Harmon, is on the much and the more. But Jesus says the way we qualify for the more is our faithfulness in the little. And so at the end of the fast, here I am sitting with Jesus. And he says, Ray Harmon, you better be faithful. 
you better be faithful. You better be faithful with what I've given you. I'm talking to somebody. I'm talking to that person who prayed for the job and got the job and testified of the miracle that they got the job who is now complaining about the job. And they say, God, I wish you would move me out of here. And the Lord says, be faithful right where I put you. Because Joseph served in Potiphar's house. He was serving there against his will. Most of us complaining about jobs we accepted. You signed the contract. Joseph is serving Potiphar as a slave. Sold into slavery by his own family. Joseph had every right in the world to be bitter. Yet the scripture says that Joseph was a slave in Potiphar's house, but he was a prosperous man. I have a problem with that scripture. You mean to tell me that I could be in a bad situation and still prosper? You mean to tell me I could be in a place against my will and still have the hand of the Lord upon my life? that I can still be in a dry season and God can still be with me and I can still be faithful with what they put to my hand even though I had a dream at 17 years old that everybody else would be bowing to me. I'm talking about to the dreamers in the house who have stopped being faithful with what God put in your hand. Because you saw the dream, and the dream said, your brothers are going to bow to you. Your mommy and daddy are going to bow to you. You're going to be the big man. All I do is win, win, win. Oh. And for, listen now, listen now, church. Not just for a few weeks. Not just for a few months. 13 years. No, no, no. Listen to this now. Listen to this. You're doing the right thing, and your life seems to be getting steadily worse. Because he was doing all right in Potiphar's house. And then one day, come on, somebody. This is the first episode of the Desperate Housewives. Come on, somebody. Potiphar's wife shows up, and it says, for many days, man, had her eyes on Joseph. Long story short. She throws, or she has Joseph thrown into prison for something he didn't even do. If anybody had a reason to be bitter in the middle, it should have been Joseph. So he goes from Potiphar's house to the prison, and the whole time he's serving God. The whole time he's helping people. Because while he's in the prison, two guys show up, and they, they've got this, he has this, or they have this dream, and, and, and he helps them, as, and they forget him in the prison. Anybody ever help somebody who abandoned you and forgot about you? It says, until the time of Joseph's word came to pass, it says the word of the Lord tested him. Can you be faithful when life seems unfair, when life seems to be falling apart, when your own family deserts and abandons you, when the people you help turn on you, when the people you help in the prison forget about you? 
Can you still be faithful? Can you still give your best? Listen to what I'm saying about Joseph now. He didn't hold anything back. While he's in the prison, he gives his very best in the prison. In the prison. And the scripture says he did his work with such excellence that the warden of the prison put him in charge of everything. And this is what most of us do. When life throws us a curveball, we withhold the best part of who we are. I ain't going to do that no more. I ain't going to do that no more, these ungrateful people. And we have a long list. We have a long list of all the people that hurt us, of all the people that wounded us. And so as a result of that, we choose to live in isolation. But for 13 years, it seemed like the more people mistreated Joseph, the more of himself he gave. Because until the promise comes to pass, until the promise comes to pass, you and I will be tested. And it is a test of faithfulness. Can you be faithful in the little things? Because I'm a pastor. I thought I was a student of the word. And I missed this whole time for seven years what God was trying to say. Because my prayer has always been, Lord, send in the harvest from the north, the south, the east, the west. Bring them in, bring them in, bring them in, bring them in, bring them in. And the Lord says, Ray, if you're faithful with little things, I'll make you ruler over more. You're worried about being ruler over more, but you've stopped being faithful in the little. Well, I stopped being faithful because I'm mad. I'm really mad. I, I don't really want to put up with this no more. How many of you realize that pastors got feelings too? And I think I've asked this question before. Uh, and, and just raise your hand. Just, this is okay. This is okay. You can raise your hand on this one. How many of you have been through a really bad breakup? <laughs> I mean, bad breakup. Well, how many? Right, 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 right. At least one, at least one. Come on, somebody. Now, I want you to consider the emotional toll that breakup took on you when you cried all night, day in and day out, week in and week out. Multiply that by several dozen people over seven years. And you will begin to understand to some measure what pastors deal with every week. When a pastor loves somebody and pours into that somebody, it's not just somebody, oh, just yeah, went to another church or left. When someone, when a pastor cares for someone, for a family, it is a bad breakup. It is a painful breakup. I was talking to a pastor friend of mine recently, and, and he said, he said, Ray, uh, do you know, do you know that uh, <laughs> most pastors quit on Monday? <laughs> and I just thought it was funny. And the reason I thought it was funny is because this pastor said when, when he came to Frisco and planted his church in Frisco, is this okay? We're just having some family talk, okay? Uh, because we're better together. 
We're having some family talk. And this, this pastor said when he came to Frisco and planted his church in 2011, uh, no, I'm sorry, in 2001, he said 11 churches, uh, 11 pastors planted churches in Frisco and he was part of a pastoral fellowship. This was in 2000 and, I'm sorry, 2011. I get my math mixed up. 2011, there were 11 pastors who planted churches in Frisco. By 2008, when he was closing the doors on his church, he was the last one standing of 11 pastors who didn't survive seven years. Uh, uh, what pastors do? Uh, somebody asked me one time, uh, what do you do all day, man? Do you just, <laughs> you just pray? <laughs> said, man, I want to be a pastor because y'all don't do nothing. <laughs> so let me tell you the test. Let me tell you the test. Let me tell you the test. So these nine days of prayer and fasting, the Lord said, be faithful to people. I said, Lord, I'm, I, think I, I think I'm a little mad. Yeah, I think I'm in my feelings a little bit. And I wish I could say I was like Joseph and I was giving my all. But I think, I, I think I'm reserving something, man, because eh, I don't want to fall in love again just for somebody to break my heart. That's real talk. That's real talk. But the, whole, the truth of the matter is, look, man, we're better together. So what I got to do now as pastor is be a big boy. So a couple of things we got to do. A couple of things we got to do. When we find ourselves in the middle, somewhere between where we believe we're supposed to be and somewhere where we once were, when God is testing us, it is a test of, the, of faithfulness. Can you still love? Here's what the Lord said. Here's what the Lord said. He said, Ray, do you love me? Said, yeah. I was like, Peter, Lord, you know I love you. And his response was the exact same thing he told Peter. Feed my sheep. Ray Harmon, if you claim to love me, take care of the people I've entrusted to you. But Lord, sheep bite back. If y'all didn't know that, sheep bite back. They have a really bad bite. And three times, Jesus wanted to make sure that Peter heard him. He said, look, Peter, do you love me? The Lord said, he said, Lord, you know I love you, man. And now Peter's getting frustrated. He said, take care of my people. So what do you do when sheep bite back? Come on, that's like all National Geographic, when sheep bite back. Hey, listen, listen, we're better together. We're better together. So Jesus set me down, put me in the chair, and said, okay, I need, you to, I, need you to, I need you to get this thing right. So, 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 so this is for all of us, okay? This is for all of us. Y'all ready? Uh, if we're going to be better together, check this out. If we're going to be better together, all right? If we're going to be better together, uh, first thing you got to do, first thing you got to do is guard your heart. Uh, Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23 says, 
uh, guard your heart with all diligence for out of it flow all the issues of life. Most of us think that our issues and our struggles and our challenges emanate from something happening out here, but the wisest man who ever lives says, check yourself before you wreck yourself because your issues originate and emanate from your heart. Robert Frost, the great author, said it this way. He says, before you build walls, make sure you know what you're walling in and what you're walling out. Because most of us build walls and we keep out what we need and we keep in what we don't need. The stuff that we're supposed to offload, we protect and guard. And the stuff that God is trying to get to us beyond the walls, we push back. So he says, guard your heart. Because out of your heart flow all the issues of life. Are y'all ready for this? I'm just going to give you two things, two reasons, two reasons to, to build walls around your heart. This is the bad stuff you need to keep out. Number one. Guard against offense. Guard against offense. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about my conversation with me and Jesus. He says, be faithful in what I've given you to do. Well, Lord, I'm mad because the sheep been biting it. So he says, Ray, guard your heart against offense. Notice what Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 19 says. Proverbs 18 and verse 19. It says, a brother offended <laughs> is harder to win than a strong city. And contentions are like the bar of a castle. He's like, when somebody gets over into a fence, man, it's like, it's almost a lost cause. It's harder to win them back than to take a strong city. Now, let me tell you what one of the reasons why that is. The word offense in the Greek is a word scandalon, scandalon, scandalon. And it is the, the, the hook to which the bait was attached. So what the, the hunters would do, and some of you are hunters, you would, you, would, you, would have, you would have a trap, and then you would have a hook, and you would put the bait on the hook, a lot like a fisherman has the hook, and you can't see the hook because of the bait. And what, what, what the writer of Proverbs is saying is when you live in a fence, you don't even realize that the enemy has you hooked. You took his bait you're offended, and that is the hook that the enemy uses to catch you. And, and here you are going through life, think you're mad at somebody else, and the enemy is dangling you on the head end of his hook called offense. Harder to win than a fortified city. I'm not talking just on my church stuff. I'm even talking about life stuff. Because it's the truth, man. If you're going to be around people for any amount of time, somebody's going to get offended. Somebody's going to be mad about something you said or something you didn't say. Something you did or something you didn't do. It's almost like no matter what you do, it's not enough. 
I could tell you story after story of some breakups. <laughs> and in my mind, I'm like, I wish they would remember the good. Because what the enemy does is he tries to remind us of the last painful conversation that we had and people quickly forget the good. So guard your heart against the fence. Number two, guard your heart against bitterness. Uh, Proverbs, I mean Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 15 says, looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble and by this many become defiled. That bitterness, man, just unwilling to let it go. It says that root of bitterness will defile you. It will contaminate you if you choose to live bitter instead of choosing to get better. The root of bitterness doesn't help hurt anybody except you. Well, the root of bitterness has a way of getting off onto other people too because misery likes company. Guard your heart. And I'm talking to Pastor Ray. And I have to ask the Lord, help me if there's any root of bitterness in me. <laughs> help me if I have any measure of offense that has kept me from being faithful in the little things. Stop doing what you used to do. Stop doing what you used to do because you mad. You hurt. Okay, number two. Uh, number two. Guard against friendly fire. I'm a soldier man. Come on, I said it like a true old school. I'm a soldier man. United States Army. One of the things they teach you is an awareness, spatial awareness, always knowing where you are, because if you're not careful, you could actually shoot somebody who's on your side. Notice what the scripture says in Galatians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15 from the Amplified. This is going to be on the screens, I believe. Notice what it says. Galatians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. It says, for the whole law concerning human relationships. When Jesus says this, he's speaking in the context of human relationships. For the whole law concerning human relationships is fulfilled in one precept. You shall love your neighbor as your that is, you shall have an unselfish concern for others and to do things for their benefit. You know what that verse means? Have an unselfish concern for the people around you and do things for their benefit. If you're always the one who has something to gain, you're not walking in the love of God. When was the last time you just did something for somebody else's benefit and not yours? When was the last time you really did something to serve others where there was no, absolutely no benefit, no remuneration that came back to you? You just did it because it was the right thing to do. He says that's the first command when it comes to human relationships. Be unselfish and do something for somebody else's benefit. And then he says, notice, here's the friendly fire part. He says, but if you bite and devour one another in bickering and strife, watch out that you along with your entire fellowship are not consumed by one another. Notice he's writing this thing to church folk. He says, 
Church folk, y'all have become spiritual cannibals. You are biting and devouring one another. And let me tell you about how that works, man. In Proverbs, this is what it says. It says the first person to present their case in the message paraphrase always seems right until somebody cross-examines them. Most of us pick up other people's offenses and you haven't even heard the whole story. Now, one person come and vomit on you. Now they feel better. How many of you know I'm being crude and crass, but how many know after you get a good upchuck, you feel a whole lot better? But most of us who do that, when we get sick, guess what we do? We go back and crawl up in the bed because we're sick. And everybody else got to clean up after us. That's what offense will do. You will throw up on somebody else, and now they're stuck with it. And they take on your offense. And all of a sudden, person A and a person B is mad at person A because of something that person C told him. That may not even be true. And the scripture says what we do as a result of that is we become spiritual cannibals and we bite and devour one another. You've heard it said before. It says the church is the only army that routinely kills its wounded. That's what we do. Oh, yeah, I'm just going to put them out their misery. When the truth is we're better together. I'm not just talking about the church. I'm talking about the people you work with, the people you live with. I'm talking about family members you haven't spoken to. Guard your heart because out of this little thing flows all the issues of life. Number two, protect the vulnerable. Protect the vulnerable. That's what you saw in that video. First Peter chapter 5 and verse 8 in the New Living Translation says, Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy. That's who, listen, 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 listen. I didn't see those buffalo turning on each other. They didn't turn on each other. They rushed to protect the most vulnerable among them. Uh, this is what church folk going to do. They're going to turn on each other. though. While somebody else eating their baby, crocodiles and lionesses. And so what my baby was with you. It happened on your watch. Instead of grabbing the herd and coming back to protect the vulnerable. And sometimes what we do is we watch other people in their pain. I ain't got nothing to do with it. Serves them right. And there's this envy and jealousy and conceit that won't allow us, listen to this, won't allow us to put ourselves in harm's way to help someone else. You, you, you heard what the lady said. I think, I think, I think the, the, the calf is dead. There are some things in your life that will look like hopeless causes. Got crocodile pulling on one leg, got lionesses ripping your head out. Is that even worth investing my time? But that's where we become better together because we protect the vulnerable among us. And the Lord said, Ray, you, if you love me, if you claim to love me, take care of my people. But Lord, I'm mad. 
Lord, I'm mad. I'm mad about stuff. No, he said, take care of my people. Protect the vulnerable. Number three, <laughs> this is where I close. Number three, this is where I close. This is where I close. Here it is. Y'all ready for this one? This one heavy, man. Y'all ready for this one? <laughs> Four words. Don't hurt the help. Mm -hmm. Don't hurt the help. You've heard me say it this way, that every villain starts out as a victim. Every villain. You read comic books, every villain starts out a victim. Somebody hurt them, and they didn't resolve their pain, didn't resolve their hurt, and guess what? They turn into a villain, and they say, I'm in pain, so everybody else going to suffer with me. How many realize that there are a whole bunch of pastors who have become villains in the pulpit because they didn't deal with their pain. And so sometimes we hurt the help. That God sends people to help us, but because we don't manage and deal with the unresolved pain, we hurt the ones who come to help us. Notice what uh, Scripture says in Acts chapter 20. Verses 28 through 31. So as I'm coming off this fast, I said, Lord, give me clarity. Uh, one of the things the Lord showed me, reminded me of, because this is one of the foundational scriptures that the Lord gave us uh, when we started City Church seven years ago. Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 31. It says, therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you oversee. Whose idea was this? One Ray Harmon's idea. The Holy Spirit chose me and Wendy to oversee God's people. I'd like to think that it was my dream and my desire, but that verse reminds us that it was God's desire, and he just picked us. Are you with me? He said, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock which, over which the whole Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Notice what you to shepherd the church of God. Notice which he purchased with his own blood. He said, those people that sometimes he complained about, I purchased them with my own blood. <laughs> How many of you realize that God loves people that you're mad at? You're mad at them but God is madly in love with them. And so often we lose perspective because this is where we live. And he said, Ray, I purchased every single one of those people, including you, with my own blood. So take care of them. Pastor them and shepherd them. And notice, notice, notice what else he says. He says, for I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things. Notice what he says now. He said, if they ain't one way, there's going to be a whole bunch of crazy folk who are going to be acting up after I leave. Notice what I'm saying. What he's saying now. He says, therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn you every night with fears, with tears, every night and day with tears. Say, Pastor, what are you talking about? What, what did Paul talk about for three years? What did Paul talk about for three years, night and day, 
He said, there's going to be some wolves that come in. Protect the flock. For three years, night and day, he warned against savage wolves. It's one thing to say, Pastor, love the flock. But it's also true that shepherds carry a big stick. We don't like that part. To protect the flock against savage wolves. So uh, this is where I close. This is where I close. Did I sit down already? Okay. This is the second clue. This is where I close. So, so I had this uh, dream. Had this dream, and I think I shared it with our leadership team. And why am I saying all of this? Uh, I'm saying all of this because uh, the Lord's really been dealing with me, helping me with my own struggles. Be faithful. And don't hurt the help. Don't hurt the help. So I had this dream, and it was a, a Saturday morning. And the dream wasn't in black and white, but it was kind of in black, black and white. You guys ever use that filter? I think it's called sepia, sepia, sepia. Sepia, there it is, loud and wrong, sepia. <laughs> and, and it kind of makes it kind of look kind of like old and whatever. So the dream, now that I'm even seeing it, it seems like the dream was in sepia. Thank you. And uh, I was... Uh, I was the guest speaker at a church, and it seemed like it was in California. I've never been to California. I've been in California in November uh, as a guest speaker out there. And, uh, but I was in this church. It was kind of an old church, like a really traditional church. And, uh, man, I can see it as clear as day. And, man, I'm up there preaching my heart out. But as I'm preaching, I just realized that everybody's just kind of looking at me. Got their arms folded. Body language is like, man, I know you preaching your guts out, but you, I ain't hearing a word you saying. And while I'm up there preaching, man, my heart is like I'm preaching and the words are just falling right in front of me. And then all of a sudden, as, as I'm preaching, man, as, I just feel something biting me and stinging me just all over my body. But I'm dressed, all my, everything's covered up. And then when I roll up my sleeve, man, there's all these bite marks, man, all over my arm. I said, Lord, what is that? Had no understanding of what it was. This was on a Saturday morning. On Sunday, I come to church, man, and I am preaching my guts out. And right here, as I'm looking out at the audience, it's almost like the, the Lord showed me the dream. But it was one of those weird things where the people that I didn't recognize in that dream, there was these faces that faded, and I started to see people from our church in the dream. And the Lord said, Ray, there are people who can't receive what you have to say because they're offended. And you have become a guest in your own church. He said the reason you were in another church preaching is because it has become the picture of how some people feel about you and your wife. And not only that, they eating you up, bruh. Roasted pastor and first lady for dinner and pastor's kids. The Lord showed it to me crystal clear and there was face after face after face after face after face, and it became crystal clear, crystal clear. So, so me being the wise pastor that I am, 
was really mad. And said, man, I pour out my blood, sweat, and tears, my wife, making sacrifices. Most people don't know this, but when, uh, when we started City Church, we moved from our house in Little Elm, lived in an apartment for two years. During that time, I worked overnight, overnight, for nine months. And I would get home Saturday morning, and I would have the worship team in my house rehearsing. I would get home at like 8 o'clock, and 10 o'clock worship team was rehearsing. I've been working all night. You guys know right now I'm bivocational as well. Haven't had a raise in seven years. But why do we do it? Because we love the people. And every now and then, every now and then, every now and then, it gets painful. Because every now and then, pastor has to carry a stick. But who's, who, am I, who am I protecting the sheep against? Savage wolves. Savage wolves. And over time, over time, there has been evidence to show that we did the right thing. That we did the right thing. Let me tell you, Wendy and I don't wake up thinking about how to hurt people's feelings. And I keep quoting you, baby, because what you say is profound. One of the things that my wife always says, we may have been wrong, but we weren't wicked. There's a difference. There's a difference. And this is where Paul closes, and this is where I close. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17. It says, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority. Oh boy, here's that dirty word, submit. Listen to what it says. Because, why? Why do that? This might sound self-serving. This might sound like I'm trying to get y'all to do something that you don't want to do. But notice why. Notice why uh, the writer of Hebrews says this. He says, have confidence in your leaders. Man, submit to their authority. People have said all kinds of stuff, man. All kinds of stuff, man. I'm like, why are you even here? Why? Why? Why are you? Why are you? Why? Why? <laughs> why? Notice what it says. It says, because your leaders keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Listen to this. Listen to this. We take what we do seriously, man. Because one day, when it's all said and done, I, my wife, will give an account to God. I will stand before God. Nobody else in this room will stand before God for the people who have come through these doors for seven years. I will give an account for every single sheep of the flock that he entrusted to me. Knowing that, knowing the gravity of standing before God and giving account, do you think I will just misuse and abuse God's people? Yeah. I must give account. But notice what it says. The scripture says, do this with joy. 
so that the pastor's work will be, or do this so that the pastor's work will be with joy, that it will not be a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Of no benefit to you. Of no benefit to you. It says, Pastor, what are you talking about, man? Don't hurt the help. Number one, as, my, as a pastor, God has sent us tremendous help. But let me tell you the flip side. The sheep shouldn't help hurt the help either. Because God sent us to help you. We're better together. And here's where we end the service. It's a quote that I saw this week. It's a quote that I saw this week, and it's by Donna Pisani. And it simply says this, if you never heal from what hurt you, you will bleed on people who didn't cut you. And so as a pastor, I have to constantly and consistently, constantly and consistently ask myself that question. Yeah. Have we made some tough decisions? Yeah. Have we asked some people to move on because that's best for the church? Absolutely. And that is my responsibility as a pastor. Some of those people are your friends. And as a result of that, you're mad at me and my wife. I get that. I get that. I get that you're mad at them. But I can guarantee you, with every ounce of integrity in my heart, it was never intended to hurt them. It was intended to help them. And many times, people push back at the help. They push back at the help. And so if you're here today, this is where I'm going to close. Number three, finally. If I've ever said or done anything, if I've ever said or done anything, and I know I have, after seven years, come on, somebody, I know that I've said things and done things that may have hurt you, may have offended you. But with every fiber of my being, every fiber of my being, it was never intended to hurt you, to harm you, uh, to degrade you. If there's anything I've ever done or my wife has ever done that's made it difficult for you to even hear my voice, maybe I didn't even do that to you. Maybe it was some, your friend told you I did to them or said to them or did them a certain way, and now you, you're mad and you come in with hands raised, but on the inside your arms are folded. If I've done that to you, I beg your forgiveness. I beg your forgiveness because we're better together. But if you're also here and you find it hard to move past any offense that you have received while being here at City Church, I pray that you will prayerfully consider where to go next. You say, Pastor Ray, you kicking people. I ain't kicking nobody out. But if, if it's that hard for you, remember the scripture says a brother offended is harder to win than a strong city. It might be too difficult for you to stay. It's time to move on for your good and for our good. Because unity, unity is the immune system of the body of Christ. Where there is unity, every Radical cell that causes disharmony has to go. It can't stay. And so for, for what I've done to you and your family, if I've rubbed you the wrong way, forgive me. And if it's too hard, if it's too hard, if it's too hard, if it's too hard for you to stay, and you say, man, I'm just going to sit in that seat with my arms folded, it's time to move on. It's time to move on. 
no need to stay. There's no hurt feelings because as we move forward, we are going to move forward together and we'll be better for it with or without you. With or without you. With or without you. With or without you. Because we want you exactly where God wants you to be, where you can honor the pastor, where you can honor your leaders without it being an issue for you. And maybe, maybe my wife and I are like Jesus was in his own hometown and you can't receive from me. Maybe it's time for you to find somewhere else because we will move forward and we will be better together. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word.